Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look at the trials of humanitarian aid workers on the border. In April 2018, then-U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions declared a zero-tolerance policy on immigration-related offenses and ordered federal officials to prioritize prosecutions of undocumented immigrants with criminal convictions. Syracuse University reported a 16% increase in 2018 over the year before in prosecutions of people accused of bringing in and harboring migrants. Scott Warren was one of those arrested in southern Arizona. Warren is a volunteer for local aid group No More Deaths. The U.S. Border Patrol apprehended Warren at a No More Deaths location in Ajo in early 2018, where they found two undocumented migrants. Warren had given the men food, water, and shelter. His first trial on two counts of felony harboring and conspiracy resulted in a hung jury in June. In his second trial last month, the conspiracy charges were dropped and he was found not guilty on charges of harboring. Emily Saunders lives in Ajo. She volunteers with a few humanitarian aid groups, including No More Deaths. She's also Scott Warren's partner. She says humanitarian aid is just part of life in Ajo. It's really common to have someone knock on the door of a person who lives here asking for food and water and help. Um, or to be driving down the highway and just encounter someone who's become lost and has, you know, luckily made their way to a road. And so, um, so I, I, together with everyone really who lives in Ajo, um, respond to people in need in that way as well. Now that Scott Warren has been found not guilty, what's the effect been on you and those who do similar work with humanitarian aid groups, be it in Ajo or in southern Arizona as a whole? You know, our mission hasn't changed. Our mission is to reduce death and suffering in the desert. But my experience has been that Scott's arrest and the arrest of the other folks um, in connection with your humanitarian aid on the Gabisa Prieta um, has served in a way as kind of a crucible um, within which people are really grappling with their deepest beliefs about how to respond to the felt their fellow human in crisis. After Scott Warren was arrested, did you worry that you could also be arrested? And now that he's been found not guilty, has that worry gone away? There has been anxiety about whether other folks will get arrested. Um, I think that one thing that happened during the trial is that, you know, we listened to witness testimony in two different felony trials that validated the work that we've been doing for years. And the tradition of humanitarian aid here in Ajo and in other border towns, again, for generations. So it really affirmed that we are not a smuggling operation using humanitarian aid as a smokescreen, which is what the government tried to argue. Um, you know, the work that we're doing in a transparent way, um, it, really, it really came through and it really held up. But unfortunately, we are also mindful that prosecution could continue. We celebrated that the jury was able to see um, that Scott was responding to people in need and able to give a verdict of not guilty in response to that. But immediately after the verdict came out, um, the U.S. Attorney for Arizona, Michael Bailey, 
um, issued a statement. Um, and in that statement, he indicated that they would continue to prosecute. And he actually even said that they, they aren't going to distinguish between whether somebody is trafficking or harboring for money. Um, so it indicates that the government will continue this politically based um, attack on those who stand in solidarity with the folks who are more directly targeted, which of course is undocumented people and migrants. There's a federal policy of what they call prevention through deterrence, and it was supposed to prevent undocumented immigrants from coming across the U.S. border. Do you feel like that policy is now being extended to humanitarian aid workers? I think that's fair to say, yeah. We are seeing surveillance, um, harassment, and criminalization of people who stand in solidarity with those most directly affected people. And it does seem like an expansion of the prevention through deterrence policies. Um, I was actually threatened personally with smuggling charges one day when I accompanied a group of Hondurans who were escaping violence and trying to seek asylum at the port of entry in a small border rural town. The officials there claimed that I was participating in human smuggling. Um, And I do believe it was a harassment technique meant to scare me, Um, but I'm not the only one who's experienced that. Another volunteer was falsely arrested. Lawyers for Al Otro Lado have been harassed and detained for periods of time. Organizers in Central America who support the humanitarian needs and human rights of migrants have been harassed, detained, and criminalized. So unfortunately, um, I do think that it's part of a larger pattern. Is the work you're doing, be it help people uh, cross the border at a port of entry or help them when they're in the desert uh, coming through, is that encouraging people in any way to cross? No, the work that I do as a resident, as a volunteer, is the same as the work that the humanitarian aid organizations in Arizona do. And and we we never um, tell people what to do. We're really committed to respecting people's self-determination, and we don't encourage anyone to cross the border. We, We do communicate to people what their options are, what legal asylum in the United States looks like, how hard it is to get. And if they are choosing to enter the desert into the wilderness, we we give them information about how to self-rescue and how to keep themselves safe. Um, But our work has never been and will never be to tell people what to do. We're just there to do as much harm reduction as we can and to witness and honor their process as humans worthy and deserving of that attention and care. It sounds like despite Scott Warren's arrest and two felony trials, uh, which he was eventually found not guilty on, and the the other volunteers who were early or found guilty of misdemeanor charges, none of that is deterring you. No, absolutely not. I think if anything, we're we're just acting with more conviction and more clearness about what's called for during this time. Um, it becomes really clear when you're in the desert and encountering someone who's been traveling not only for days through the desert, but for weeks through Central America on faith, um, on behalf of their families, with a desire to do good in the world and to be safe, um, that the human heart you know, has a responsibility and also a joyful privilege you know, to respond in kind, in kindness and in solidarity. So we will continue doing that work. And as long as people continue to die here in the desert, it's needed. 
you know, just this year in Arizona, 150 bodies have been recovered in the desert. And those are just the people whose remains have been found. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. You're more than welcome. And thanks so much um, for your time. That was Emily Saunders, a volunteer with No More Deaths. Now on to the legal case. Heather Sechrist is the criminal chief for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona. She gave us the basic definition of harboring. Harboring is essentially when you are, when you have an illegal alien and you are keeping them somewhere so that you can essentially help them elude or evade law enforcement. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. So what are the penalties for harboring if you're caught and convicted of that? Well, it really depends. Um, So it depends on why you're doing it, and it depends on um, what happened to the individual who is being harbored at the time that the harboring occurred. So um, if the person isn't doing it for profit, then the maximum penalty is five years. If the person is doing it for profit, the maximum penalty is 10 years. And if you, during the course of harboring the alien, there's serious bodily injury or um, the substantial risk of serious bodily injury, then the penalty goes up to 20 years. And if there's death, then it could be up to life. Now, having said all of that, uh, if there isn't a mandatory minimum, which in this case there isn't, at the end of the day, it's up to the judge to decide what the penalty is going to be. So how do you as a prosecutor, a judge, when they're listening to all this and thinking about sentencing, how do you determine intent? It sounds like there's an intent clause in this law. There is. There's absolutely is. I mean, that's that's clear both when you look at the statute. It's also clear in the case law uh, for the Ninth Circuit. You have to have the intent to violate the law. And and that can mean different things. So there's actually a case that talks about that and talks about examples of what that intent could be. And, 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 and I'm going to use it in the context of harboring since we're talking about that here. Um, the intent could be to help the person elude or evade law enforcement. That That's an intent to violate that law. The intent could also be, and the, and the case that I'm thinking of is very clear about this, right? This is a Ninth Circuit case law, pretty recent. I think it was 2018. And it talks about how the intent could be if you're harboring somebody at your house and, and you're just you're strongly opposed to immigration policy or immigration law and you tell everybody in the world, I'm harboring, I'm harboring currently illegal aliens in my house. That, according to the Ninth Circuit in that case, is something else that shows an intent to violate the law. When it comes to intent, we hear a lot here in southern Arizona, especially about people doing humanitarian aid work. Does that play into the law as part of the intent? Well, certainly it is something that, and and I don't want to get into a string of hypotheticals, okay? But um, that is something that, that you would look at, right? But I would also say that if someone is violating the law, if somebody is harboring an individual and their purpose is to help that individual elude law enforcement to stay in the country illegally, then it doesn't matter how they characterize themselves. It doesn't matter how they define themselves. It doesn't matter whether they call themselves a humanitarian aid worker or anything else for that matter. If they've committed the crime, then they're going to be subject to the same penalty as you or I or anybody else who commits that crime. 
and, and again, I don't speak on behalf of the Department of Justice. Every case is has to be viewed like we do as prosecutors on a daily basis, on a case by case basis to determine, you know, what is our evidence of intent? Um, that can be direct evidence. It can be circumstantial evidence. And, you know, you could say, oh, yes, there's a situation where you have a person who's out in the middle of the desert. And, and this is just an image that comes to my mind, right? He's This person is out in the middle of the desert. I'm driving by. I see the person. His lips are parched. And I stop and I have some some water and I have it. And I'm thinking, you know, almost like a like an old wooden spoon. And I and I put that water in that person's mouth and I save that person's life, right? Am I in that instance harboring someone or am I providing humanitarian aid? I would say, Heather Seeker says, I'm providing at that point humanitarian aid. However, right, however, you got to look at all of the circumstances. At some point, it goes beyond the point of humanitarian aid and it moves into the point of having an intent. You can see from the actions of the person or the group or what have you, you can see that the intent has shifted and that the intent now is to help the individual stay out of the clutches of Border Patrol, stay out of the clutches of Immigration Customs Enforcement. I mean, these are real issues. It's just like any other crime. Intent, how do you know what's in somebody's mind? Well, you have to look at what the person did and all of the surrounding circumstances and say, what was that person's intent? Was it just to provide that spoonful of water on the side of the road? Or was it something more? That's really the question. Voices in Southern Arizona have said since the zero tolerance policy on immigration has come down from Washington that there have been more charges of harboring against people who say they're doing humanitarian aid work. Is that a correct assumption? Let me start by saying um, that I think that there is a misunderstanding of what the zero tolerance policy is. Okay, The zero tolerance policy applies to offenses under Title VIII United States Code Section 1325A, which are people who are entering the country illegally. When you read the zero tolerance policy, it doesn't make mention of anything about harboring or alien smuggling or transporting illegal aliens, much less any mention of humanitarian aid workers. What people are really referring to, and I want to be clear about this, is something that was issued by Jeffrey Sessions on April 11th of 2017, which is the renewed commitment to criminal immigration enforcement. And, and it says renewed, right? This isn't a new thing. We didn't just decide that we're going to start you know, enforcing these immigration laws. These laws have been on the books, and it's in recognition of the fact that we do have a lot of people and we do. We have, and I, and I can tell you about it. I mean, we, we prosecuted a number of people with significant criminal histories in the past year, um, over 2,000 in Tucson alone. It does talk about how each district, and this isn't just in Arizona, but throughout the country, shall consider for prosecution any case involving the unlawful transportation or harboring of aliens or any other conduct prescribed pursuant to the alien smuggling statute. And then it goes on to talk about essentially, um, 
prioritization if there are too many. And this is a public document that you can Google and find online. And then it also talks about prioritization of charging those who have previously been deported and returned to the United States illegally. And I think that that's important as well, because, um, you know, many of the people who are crossing that people are harboring or that people are transporting or committing some sort of law of violation could fall into this category. And and that directed the districts to consider essentially charging with a felony anyone who's previously been deported that returns, Um, but priority being given to those who have been convicted of an aggravated felony, have any prior criminal history indicating that the defendant poses a danger to public safety, have one or more administrative or criminal immigration violations, gang membership or affiliation, or where there's other aggravating circumstances that are present. So this memorandum recognizes, right, that, that there are finite resources, Correct. And so that we are we are going to have this renewed commitment to immigration, criminal immigration enforcement, That, but that we're going to do it in a way that makes sense with prioritizing those that um, have the greatest potential to harm other people in this country. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us and explaining what is a very complicated topic. No problem. It was good to be here. Thank you for having me. Heather Sechrist is the criminal chief for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona. She says in just the past few weeks, the federal government has prosecuted felony offenses for previously deported people back in the country illegally who were also convicted of crimes including domestic violence, sexual assault, armed robbery, and drug trafficking in Arizona. Last month, Scott Warren was found not guilty of federal harboring charges relating to his work with humanitarian aid group No More Deaths. It was his second trial on those charges. In addition to the felony harboring charges, Warren also faced misdemeanor charges for trespassing by driving on restricted roads in the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge and leaving water and supplies in a wildlife area. Before trial, his lawyers tried to get the case dismissed by invoking the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They argued Warren provided humanitarian aid because of his spiritual beliefs. The judge rejected that argument as grounds for dismissal, but said the attorneys could bring it up during the trial. They did, and the judge found Warren not guilty of one misdemeanor charge based on those arguments. He was found guilty of the driving misdemeanor and will be sentenced in February. Catherine Frankie is a law professor and faculty director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University. She joined four other professors at Columbia in filing a brief in Warren's case supporting his use of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. When many people think of religious liberty, Christianity often comes to mind. But Frankie says that's just because of recent history. The Christian right, the evangelical Christian right, has done a very effective job of capturing the very idea of religious liberty. They have very well-funded advocates in several organizations that have brought numerous lawsuits and have very effective media campaigns to frame a threat to the religious liberty of evangelical Christians posed by the expansion and recognition of rights for LGBT people, um, but also Um, Over time, they've used religious liberty as a way to undermine reproductive rights. But if you look historically at the way in which we have protected religious liberty in this country, going back to even before the founding of the country, religious liberty rights were really put in place in order to protect religious minorities, like Quakers, like Amish, like Seventh-day Adventists, like Jews. 
because the kinds of what seem to be neutral rules that we have in society, like Sunday is a day that most people take as a as a break or as a day of rest, um, is not the day or the Sabbath for uh, for other religious groups. Because the Scott Warren case here was so high profile, at least in Arizona, does it represent a change in the way the public may view religious liberty as not just the domain of of Christians, as you said, uh, which has been the view in, in recent years? I should hope so, because the kinds of principles that are protected in the Constitution and in our federal and state laws that protect religious liberty are supposed to be neutral in their application to protect all people of faith, whether they have traditional religious beliefs with an organized church or non-traditional religious beliefs without any church at all, which was the case for Scott Warren. Um, Our religious liberty laws should protect everyone. Looking at the Warren case, some out there will say, well, he just used religion to escape a crime. What's the difference between, uh, when we're looking at religious liberty, Warren's humanitarian aid versus actually committing a crime and being convicted of it? Well, you don't. You have to show much more than that you have some fabricated at the last minute religious beliefs that might give you um, a fraudulent way out of having to comply with the law. The requirements for getting a religious exemption are actually quite stringent. You have to show that you have a religious belief, that it is sincerely held, and that was much of the testimony in the case of, is the sincerity of, of Dr. Warren's beliefs that date back to his childhood, and his father actually testified to the sincerity and depth uh, and nature of his religious beliefs, of, of his son's religious beliefs, and that those sincerely held religious beliefs are substantially burdened by the government's action, in this case, prosecuting him criminally and putting him in prison for doing what he did. And so there's actually quite a lot that you have to show in order to get an exemption from complying with the criminal law. And then the government has to show that there's no other way that it could further its important and fundamental interest in maintaining security at the border than by putting Scott Warren in prison. Historically speaking, was this prosecution an unusually strict application of the law? It was partially. Part of the problem was that it was an unnecessarily strict interpretation of the law. I also think it was a disingenuous application of the law, so that this government, this Department of Justice, has issued a number of internal policies instructing the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, to bend over backwards to protect religious liberty rights. Yet in this case and in a number of the other cases that I've been involved with um, across the country where faith-based people are resisting the Trump administration's policies, the prosecutors misstated religious liberty law in order to enforce larger government policies. So where they're prosecuting activists who disagree with the Trump administration They are actually abridging religious liberty law and misstating it. But if the activists were were, um, following and defending federal government policies, for instance, their policies that are not favoring the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, or queer people, or reproductive rights, then the federal government is happy to come into the rescue of them. So their prosecution here, I think, was quite disingenuous 
And many of the things that the prosecutor said during the course of this case mocked Scott Warren's religious liberty defense in ways that I just found shocking. With the ruling in this case, and yes, it is only a lower court, but going forward, will this ruling, do you think, affect how humanitarian work is done on the border? Well, it should. It certainly should, because there are so many faith-based actors working on both sides of the border, in Mexico and in um, southern Arizona, New Mexico and California and Texas. And my worry, if, if the judge in the Warren case had not granted the religious liberty defense, is that the next groups to be prosecuted would be soup kitchens in Tucson or homeless shelters in Phoenix, where, um, where faith-based organizations were providing food and shelter to whoever came to their doors needing it. And if they weren't checking to see what the immigration status was of those people who were hungry or needed shelter, those faith-based organizations would risk being prosecuted for providing aid to undocumented people, just as Warren and the other members of No More Deaths had. So I was quite worried that if Warren's religious liberty claim lost, that the government would feel emboldened to prosecuting even more a broader group of faith-based organizations across the Southwest um, and in a number of places across the border. And thankfully, uh, I think this, this ruling will chastise the federal government and protect those who are providing faith-based aid to people who are just in a desperate situation. Does this ruling preclude the Border Patrol from monitoring Dr. Warren when he's out in the Cabeza Prieta refuge, essentially waiting for him to do something they believe is illegal? I don't have any doubt that they're watching him and that they're probably watching the other members of No More Deaths. I think they'll probably be quite careful in initiating criminal prosecutions again, um, given that they already had a hung jury and then an acquittal in Warren's case. But this government seems to be not the least bit interested in complying with general um, principles of law, um, but instead acting with, with muscle and violence to enforce its own policies um, without heeding the law. So I, if I were an activist at the border, I would certainly be quite careful in the work that I was doing um, because the federal government seems um, bent, hell-bent on um, prosecuting people, threatening them, throwing them in jail in a kind of preventive detention way, um, uh, and treating the activists as if they were um, as legally vulnerable as the undocumented people are who are coming across our borders. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for talking to me. That was Columbia Law Professor Catherine Frankie, And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor with help this week from Meredith O'Neill. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.